Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Hey, Courtney, did you have a piggy bank when you were a little girl? I most definitely did, Aunt Carol. And after a mysterious accident, I was able to use all the money inside that piggy bank for the school book fair that just happened to coincide with my piggy bank's untimely demise. Hmm, I won't go into detail on what happened, but I vividly remember my piggy bank. It was a large pink ceramic pig with a cork in the bottom. Now, I'm embarrassed to say I pulled the cork out of the bottom to get money out almost as fast as I dropped it in the slot in the pig's back. That's why I keep thinking that keeping money in the bank is probably better than our old piggy bank method. To tell the truth, you would actually think so, my dear niece, but banks haven't always been reputable, especially when it comes to dealing with Black people. Systemic racism, what we talk about here, has been a part of banking ever since Blacks were allowed to start using them. For example, North One Bank published a blog titled The Legacy of Racism in the Banking Industry, which is a synopsis of the history of banking misdeeds. Now, the blog talks in depth about the Freedmen's Bank, which was set up following emancipation in 1865. The idea was to help newly freed Black Americans start to develop their own wealth. Now, despite the fact that the bank didn't offer loans, it grew very strong with tens of thousands of depositors trusting it with their assets. But Here's the sad news. By 1874, fraud and mismanagement by senior leaders and the board of directors of Freedmen's weakened the bank. And one board member, a white businessman named Henry D. Cook, used money from the Freedmen's Bank to invest in his own quarry operations. Now, the quarry eventually went bankrupt and the bank was devastated. By 1874, Freedman's Bank had closed and 60,000 Black Americans lost $30 million in savings. Now, the failure of the Freedman's Bank was the beginning of a cultural legacy of mistrust by the Black community towards banking institutions, and it also contributed to the systemic wealth gap that continues to this day. For example, Courtney, the average household wealth for a white American family is $171,000, but it's only $17,000 for a Black American family. Wow, when you see it in dollars and cents, it's truly shocking to both see in print and hear. 
Well, it is. But the loss of the Freedmen's Bank wasn't the end of financial institutions for Blacks. Black people learned early on to pool their resources to support each other, and Black-owned banks played a vital role in the economic health of Black communities. And I believe you have a story about one of those banks. You're absolutely right. Now, you mentioned just, you know, a few sentences earlier that the Freedmen's Bank was established in 1865, right at the end of the Civil War. Now, at the end of the Civil War, America was faced with two challenges. The first challenge was to restore a country that had split itself apart and two, how to deal with the nearly 4 million formerly enslaved African-Americans who had gone from what was considered property to people, to citizens, seemingly overnight. Now, despite the formerly enslaved African-Americans being the workforce that had generated billions of dollars for America with their free labor and placing the country on the path to becoming a global powerhouse for decades to come, the formerly enslaved had nothing to show for their work except for this intangible promise of freedom, which they were of course, rightly owed, but could not buy them anything or set them up for any kind of success. So despite being just handed their freedom, most if not all African-Americans at the end of the Civil War um, lacked some of the most basic needs, food, shelter, and clothing. And they were technically living in enemy territory. Um, just because the war was over didn't mean that they were looked at as fellow Americans by whites. Yeah, certainly not a smooth transition out of being an enslaved person to a citizen. So yeah, it was tough. It was very tough. And that's why many newly freed African-Americans stayed on their plantations after the war. Think of it in terms of better the devil you know than the one you don't. And that's also where we get this urban myth that African-Americans loved being the property of their masters so much that they didn't want to leave after they were free. Now, that's not true. It wasn't because these plantations were warm, welcoming places. It's because it was all they new. Right. And there are stories of, of formerly enslaved people actually dying in the streets of, um, you know, starvation, having no clothes on their back, having no shelter over their heads. So, yeah, I can see why a formerly enslaved individual might say, well, the plantation, at least I can get some food, shelter and clothing here. Exactly. No one knew what to do uh, with this new population. Not even the federal government knew what freedom and citizenship looked like for African-Americans in practical application. Now, in response to giving them their freedom, the federal government created the Freedmen's Bureau, which I said, like you mentioned earlier, to assist with the transition from enslaved to American citizen. But despite even its best effort, the Freedmen's Bureau was wrought with issues and often came up lacking. From outright biased and racist ideas, from bureau officers to the simple lack of funding and resources and downright corruption, the Freedmen's Bureau often, you know, had less than a stellar reputation when it came to providing services to this new population. Although it was created to help, uh, there were more setbacks than, you know, successes. 
Now, another group who saw helping African-Americans as a more noble cause were the northern white Christian organizations who felt like it was their Christian duty to help blacks. They saw them as docile and childlike and that they lacked any ability to function along adult whites in regular society as if they needed a babysitter. Mm, Okay, so here's again that trope of the uneducated, uh, unintelligent Black person who really can't figure out how to live. They can't figure out how to live. And it also feeds into that white savior trope that Mm. many of us in the anti-racism community are trying to teach and so many are teach against and so many are trying to unlearn. Now, for all of their help, their view of African-Americans was very stereotypical and downright racist. Now, when they were confronted by a population of not only free African-Americans, but formerly enslaved African-Americans that were organized, could read, write, and had a thirst to become scholars, business owners, and move above that narrative of being a slave, they were offended. So what they thought was going to happen is they were going to be embraced with open arms and thanked and and, you know, thank you for helping us. But they didn't really get that. And that's where the narrative comes from, um, where a lot of people believe that black people are lazy. They don't want to work. They'll only take government handouts. You know, they're rude, you know, all of that. And what that comes from is that African-Americans were saying, we don't we're not your children. We don't need your help. We need your money and we need your resources, but we don't need you to lord, lord over us. We already left one plantation. We don't need another. And quickly that help was withdrawn from those organizations. Now, a great um, example of this is documented in the book Education of Blacks in the South from 1860 to 1935 by James D. Anderson, which is actually the first book on the Why Are They So Angry learning community reading list, if you want to check that out. So if the Freedmen's Bureau fell short, and they're a government organization, and the Northern Christian organizations felt slighted, who did African Americans turn to to receive quality help immediately after the first years uh, after the Civil War? I'd love to know that. Well, the answer is themselves. In cities like Richmond, Virginia, and many others across the South, months after the Civil War, not years, but months after the Civil War, African-Americans came out to help each other other. Um, Ones who were freed and recently freed founded towns and neighborhoods, and they started to build up these communities, quickly forming and organizing around the Black church and other social organizations in the area, with the understanding that the majority of the Southern white population was not going to come to their aid, and bureaus like the Freedmen's Bureau or missionary societies would only help uh, with their small contributions or with strings attached. Now, by 1867, these social groups uh, were a diverse group of of churches, clubs, businesses. So it wasn't just the Black church. It was also secular groups as well. But they created this thriving Black middle class who understood that they were only a few years out of slavery and didn't want to become dependent on the very people who had once enslaved them. Mm. 
Makes a lot of sense. They, I remember a saying for the United Negro College Fund, we're not looking for a handout, just a hand. And so uh, it sounds like these organizations were saying, we're taking our future and our uh, livelihoods and our uh, economic growth and development into our own hands. Now, if you want to help, that's fine, but we're stepping out first. Exactly. These communities understood that to gain actual freedom, they would have to form their own financial institutions. Now, if you remember from our Girl Scout episode, we talked about Maggie Lena Walker and the St. Luke Savings and Loan in Richmond, which became a consolidated bank. It was a concept in which these social clubs and businesses would morph into banks. And that's what is going to lead us into today's subject the first African-American-owned bank in America, which was started by William Washington Brown. Now, William Washington Brown, or some know him as Reverend William Washington Brown, was born in 1849 in the state of Georgia. He was born into slavery, but ran away uh, before the Civil War could start and actually joined the Union Army to fight for the freedom of others. Now, once the war was over, William attended school in Wisconsin and then moved back to Georgia, where he became a teacher, which was a very prominent and respected uh, occupation, especially with the African-American community at that time. Oh, that it were the case today. Too bad that we disparage teachers and treat them so badly. But at least in that time period, teachers were held to a high standard and were pretty much on a pedestal. Yes, they were. The only other position that would be looked on a little bit higher would be a pastor, which William would dabble in a little bit later in the story. Now, along with being a teacher, William was known to speak out fervently against groups like the KKK, which gained him even more respect in the black community because that was dangerous. That was pretty much a death Mm -hmm. sentence. But he was not afraid to speak out and speak up against the Ku Klux Klan. Now, if there was one thing that he hated more than the KKK, it was alcohol. Oh, that's interesting. So how does this play out? Well, he wouldn't let a chance go by without talking about how alcohol would be the downfall of the newly freed black population. In his mind, drunkenness was a direct line to the chain gang or worse. Hmm. He would use inflated facts about how thousands of black men had lost their right to vote simply due to drinking. Now, he wouldn't add in the second part of, you know, being arrested, uh, killed, lynched, all that. For him, it was because they took that one drink. After that one drink, it was just you were down for the count and you were just on your way back to the plantation. But William was just one of many, and he knew that there was power in numbers. He had been a witness to how Black churches and social societies had worked together to create this powerful Black middle class. And if he could create his own group with the message of put down the bottle and stray no more, he could reach a wider audience. Okay, so he's got a plan. At least he's looking at how he can capitalize on other groups to get what he wants to get done. 
very true. Now he did this by starting his own temperance organization. So think about your local clubs and social societies that we have now, the Elks, the Masons, the Shriners. Back then there were tons of these groups, both black and white. And many of them were for temperance as well. And that is what William wanted his group to be about, just stopping the consumption of alcohol by African-Americans. And he got some support from some very unlikely uh, allies, if you want to call them that. Now, there was a white temperance organization called the Grand Lodge of Good Templars, and that's where William sought help. Now, at first, he just outright asked, hey, can I become a member of your group? I don't drink alcohol. You don't drink alcohol. It would be a good fit. Now, the men of the Good Templars were like, immediately, no, 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 no. We do not want you to be a part of this organization at all. There's a big thing that didn't make it a a good fit. And uh, I guess he didn't think about the fact that being Black was going to take precedence. Well, he he was so fearless and so, you know, gung-ho about Black people not consuming alcohol. I think he kind of went in there with some false bravado. Mm, Okay. But what the good Templars did say they would do is that he they would sponsor William pretty much go away. We'll even give you money to go away, go away and start your own organization that has you cannot trace it back to us, but we'll support you in that way. So in that vein, he started in 1874, the United Order of the True Reformers. Now, the main goal of any of these social organizations is to have a grand lodge. And that was another requirement of the Good Templars for William to keep this organization going, that he would have to create what are called sub fountains, like small little groups or clubs under the umbrella of the true reformers. Now, once he had created 50 of these sub fountains, he would be able to create create a grand lodge or a grand fountain. So think of an organizational chart. You'd have the grand lodge at the top and the smaller ones would be at the bottom, but he'd have to create the smaller ones first before he could have his grand lodge. Well, that's quite a challenge. Uh, They threw it out there and did he take it? Well, he knew he had to get to work. So he quit his job as a teacher and began going around from town to town. And a fact that a lot of people uh, may not know, he absorbed other uh, temperance organizations into the true reformers. Smart move, smart move. Exactly. All in the goal to create the Grand Fountain. But he knew there would be a really, really quick way to create all 50 and he knew that he could involve the Black church. So William Washington Brown became Reverend William Washington Brown under the CME church. So not only did he have a captive audience every Sunday of people who usually did not drink, that would be more membership for his sub fountains. Hmm. Okay, so the man's got a plan. Now, as he went along creating these fountains and going from town to town and absorbing other temperance organizations, he realized even that was a full time job. So then he just he put down the the preaching robe and he became dedicated to the true reformers full time. And he did meet his goal and he would have his grand fountain in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, That is where the grand fountain would be located. And that would also be the spot of the first black owned bank in America. Mm. 
And when we come back from the break, I'll I'll share how the bank was created and unfortunately how it came to an end. Wow, Courtney, William Washington Brown was tenacious. He he could put on any kind of position that he needed to get what he wanted. Escaped enslaved person, a member of the Union Army, a uh, Templar, well, uh, would-be Templar, uh, a minister. I mean, the guy, a teacher, he did it all. Now, I can't wait to, how, to hear how he put these energies into creating a bank. So let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll hear about some more of his exploits. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? And connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? See you there. Well, all righty, Courtney. We've heard how William Washington Brown was busily growing the true reformers. What did he do next? Now, when we left off in part one, Reverend William Washington Brown, now former Reverend Brown, he's back to William, had met his goal of creating uh, the sub fountains and was on his way to creating the Grand Lodge. And the group was already expanding further into other ventures like selling sick benefits and death benefits. And William knew that more would be needed to continue these efforts to support the black middle class. So we've got the Grand Lodge, local lodges and different benefits that they're doling out. So the question was, where are we going to put this money and who is going to keep it? Mm, And, you know, at that time, no banks around or the only ones that went around were white folks. Exactly. Now, in 1887, Brown visited Charlotte County, Virginia, and he was there on a trip to just establish just a local bank branch of the true reformers. Um, The lodge had decided that they were going to keep their funds with a local white shop owner in town. But there had been a lynching a few weeks before and tensions were high between the black and white community. And this shop owner just took it upon himself just to start sharing with the white residents in town. Hey, you know, you know, the black people in town are keeping their money with me. I don't know what they're doing, but, you know, they're organizing and something might happen. They might want to do something to us. And, you know, I know that for a fact because they're giving me their money. So you can only imagine the kerfuffle that that caused. Mm -hmm. And that was... um, that incident forced that local branch to disband. And that's when Brown decided that the true reformers would have to have a bank of its own um, so they could put their finances in and it would so and so it would not be monitored by the whites in whatever town they decided to have the bank in. And that makes complete sense because they control it instead of having the enemy pretty much control it. Exactly. So on March 2nd, 1888, William Washington Brown founded the Savings Bank of the Grand Fountain United Order of True Reformers. I can't imagine a check with that name on it. But anyway, that's the name. What happened next? Now, I know a lot of our listeners are history buffs, history teachers and history detectives, and they're giving me the side eye saying, well, Courtney, didn't the Capital Savings Bank of Washington, D.C. 
open first and weren't they black owned? Yes, you are right. They opened their physical doors um, in Washington, D.C. on October 17th, 1888. So if we're looking at a physical building, yes, they were first. But to be founded on paper and legally set up, the True Reformers Bank, although they didn't have a physical brick and mortar building, were the first to open. Now, their first physical location was opened on April 3rd, 1889 at 105 West Jackson Street in the Jackson Ward District of Richmond, Virginia. Well, thanks for sorting out that historical kind of uh, mystery there. Now we know who really was first. Exactly. Now, the first day's deposits totaled $1,269.28, which would be the equivalent in purchasing power in today's money of Mm $39,665.55. That's quite a, that would have been quite a lot back in that day. In 1891, the bank moved, so they expanded. They went all the way down to 604, all the way through 608 North 2nd Street. And the bank survived the financial panic of 1893, during which it was the only bank in Richmond to maintain full operation, honoring all checks and paying out the full value of accounts. Wow, that is amazing. Now, even Richmond's white run newspaper, the Richmond Times, who needless to say, did not often report positively on the lives and doings of African-Americans in the city. They had to be moved to praise the bank during that financial panic, reporting that after school board clerk C.P. Ratty called every other white owned bank um, in the city, the True Reformers Bank was the only one that was able to honor the checks so that the school system's janitor salaries could be paid. That is, again, amazing, amazing. I am just enthralled by this guy's abilities. Now, William Brown died in 1897, but the bank continued to thrive after his death, expanding into other services. So they still were doing the death benefits, the sick benefits. They had a newspaper, a real estate agency, a retirement home, a building and loan association, and new bank branches opened up as far away as Kansas. And by 1900, the bank was operating in 24 states, owning property valued at a total of $223,500. Now, in today's money, that would be $7,649,660. Quite a feat. Quite a feat. Now, Brown's vision of a cultivated Black middle class of did continue on with those other services. And he set up more things under the name of the true reformers so African-Americans could join and gain even more benefits. At the time, W.E.B. Dubois characterized uh, Brown's fraternal order as probably the most remarkable Negro organization in the country. I'd have to agree with him. Now, the business network created by the true reformers fell apart in 1910. Oh, no. 
sorry i know it's we're taking it all the way up we're excited we're excited but eh, i'm sorry in 1910 that was the year it was discovered that the cashier of the true reformers bank had embezzled more than fifty thousand dollars from members deposits the scandal had become public at the same time that several businesses had defaulted on a series of large unsecured loans leaving the true reformers unable to pay insurance claims the Virginia State uh, Co- Corporation Commission closed the bank on October 20th, 1910, leading to the collapse of most of the true reformers' other ventures, mm-hmm. largely because they were all tied up in the bank as the financial core. Now, the order continued to serve as a fraternal organization and provide insurance benefits all the way up to 1934 when its name disappeared from the Virginia State Corporation Commission's records. In eight, in 1989, though, the True Reformer building in Washington, D.C. was placed on the historic register. Wow, Courtney, that is quite a story about you know, rags to riches, basically. And on the one hand, it's nice to know the True Reformer's building still exists as a tangible reminder of its importance. But it's unfortunate that the Empire Brown built crumpled. Because, you know, it's critical to have sound banks and financial institutions uh, to be in a community to form the economies and build wealth and create financial security. Very true, Ann Carol. And I'm glad to hear this story so people can know that it is possible um, to have an empire like uh, William Brown's. But how are things faring in bank and finance today as far as Black people and Black-owned banks? Well, Courtney, William Washington Brown and Black people after the Civil War were justifiably suspicious of banking and financial institutions. And things haven't changed too much in the 21st century. As far as Black-owned banks, like the one Brown created after the Civil War, which many of which went under at the turn of the 20th century, um, that opened the door for white banks to do a variety of discriminatory banking practices. Now, for example, you'll recall our episodes about how during the mid 20th century, blacks, I'm sorry, banks with the blessing of the federal government sanctioned redlining neighborhoods, which meant that areas with large black populations were refused loans to buy or fix up properties. Now, the impact of redlining can still very much be felt in many major cities across the country because that practice created the heavily segregated neighborhoods we now see. Also, redlining is one of the main contributors to the financial uh, wealth gap that we have in this country that makes it harder for Black entrepreneurs to get their businesses off the ground. Now, another banking practice that harms Black wealth and home ownership is unequal mortgage rates. In 2019, for example, researchers for the National Bureau of Economic Research found that Black mortgage borrowers were charged higher interest rates than white borrowers and were denied mortgages that were customarily approved for white applicants. Then to top things off, many Black customers who go to a white bank are regularly viewed with suspicion just for entering. 
They can be refused service and question over basic transitions. And there are too many examples of this to mention, but, but here's one. In July, 2018, Barbara Carroll, a elderly black woman, walked into a bank to cash a check. And despite handing over legitimate identification, she was accused of forgery and the police were called. And sadly, almost every month or so, I read about incidents like this happening at banks, including one of the most famous in which the well-known director, Ryan Coogler, who directed the wildly popular film, Black Panther, was arrested because a teller thought he was a bank robber. Oh, wow. I do remember hearing about the Ryan Coogler story and many other people after hearing that began to tell their own tales on social media of how they felt like a suspect going into their own bank. Now, don't you think some of those discriminatory practices could be alleviated if there were more more black owned banks and Carol? Yes, I do, Courtney, just as we saw with uh, Reverend Brown's bank, which supported the Black community. Black-owned banks make capital more accessible because they approve a higher percentage of loans to Black applicants than other banks. But the flip of that coin is it's offset by the fact that the number of Black-owned banks has declined. In uh, 2008, the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve launched something called the Partnership for Progress to help promote and preserve minority-owned businesses. But despite its efforts, the number of Black-owned banks actually has declined from 48 in 2001 to 18 in 2020. And banking access in the Black community has not only been limited by the decrease of the number of Black-owned banks, but by an overall decrease in the number of banks, period, in majority Black neighborhoods. Now, I guess that's why certain neighborhoods are called branch deserts. That's right. Branch deserts are parts of cities or counties where bank branches are more or less non-existent, which makes it difficult for these communities to access basic banking services. So, you know, they just can't get to a bank. There isn't one that exists. Now, why is this important? Lower income and less educated households are twice as likely to use branch banks. And the same is true for elderly adults. I remember my mom, she did all of her banking by going to the bank. She didn't believe in doing anything in the by mail or and digital didn't even exist then. Now, in addition to that, 23% of urban households visited a bank uh, 10 or more times a month, demonstrating that a significant number of households still use this service. Now, I know we do live in the internet age, but I do miss those bank days with grandma because I always knew that we were going to go to McDonald's and I was going to get a happy meal. So (laughs) I benefited from those bank trips, but I am a millennial. I am a kid of the internet. So why aren't people just hopping on their phones or their laptops? Well, it's true to an extent, Courtney, that that is a solution. And our listeners might not think this is such a big deal, that there are so few branch banks since they may rely on internet banking services and rarely visit a physical bank. Like you and I, I haven't been inside my credit union uh, office in months. But while online sounds good, convenient, and an answer to branch deserts, those who lack financial resources or internet access or transportation that gets them, you know, to uh, be able to bridge that gap, you still need the brick and mortar branches because they are where 
banking customers in those communities can go. Now, another important reason to have branch banks in neighborhoods is that research shows when there is a branch bank in a neighborhood, access to mortgage loans and loans in general for small business ventures increases. Now, I've heard that even if a bank is in a neighborhood and a Black person can get a checking account, the fees they pay are higher than their white counterparts. Well, you heard it right, Courtney. According to a 2020 survey data from Bankrate, minorities, millennials, and people who live in the Northeast reported paying higher bank fees. Now, the data show that the average checking account holder at a bank or credit union paid $8 per month in fees. And that's pretty much where I am. I pay about six bucks. ATM fees and overdraft penalties, uh, they can vary by race. For example, white checking account holders reported paying the lowest amount in monthly bank fees, $5, compared to, get this, $12 for a Black account holder and $16 for Latino or Hispanic account holders. And another group that people don't know about or like to talk about are the formerly incarcerated and how hard it is for them to re-enter the financial world after serving their sentences. That's right, Courtney. It's a two-edged sword. According to a Wall Street Journal article, each year more than 600,000 formerly incarcerated people are released to the U- uh, out of the U.S. prisons, but the financial consequences can follow them long after, even though they've served their sentence. It can be hard for them to get checking accounts and nearly impossible to get loans. Some get out, get this, only to discover that their identities have been stolen because their personal information is public record. And so it's easy for that to happen. And since black men are six times more likely than white men to be in prison, the financial aftermath for them is disproportionately harsher. And all this probably has a negative impact on their credit score, which is a big hurdle in getting a loan, an apartment, a job, a car, Mm. even sometimes a checking account. If someone's hacked or stolen their identity and opened some bad checking accounts, they're pretty much screwed. Pretty much. It's a vicious cycle, Courtney, since many of those uh, formerly incarcerated do have bad credit scores. Here's how it works or doesn't work, I should say. Criminal histories don't show up on credit records, so that's not the problem. But credit scores fall from lack of debt use and can disappear after seven years. So if you've gone to prison uh, and you've been in there for over seven years, you probably have no score at all, which means the formerly incarcerated don't have access to credit. Now with less access to credit, the studies have shown those former inmates were nearly 20% more likely to go back to jail. Now, the formerly incarcerated often fall into a wider group called the unbanked. Approximately 40% of the unbanked adults use alternative financial services that are poorly regulated and often take advantage of Blacks and people of color. Well, what do people do that don't have bank accounts or poor credit ratings or no ratings at all? Um, How do they manage their money? Oh, sadly, sadly, they fall prey to unscrupulous practices like payday loans, cash advance loans, check advance loans, post-dated check loans and deferred deposit loans, short-term high interest rate loans provided by check cashers, finance companies and others 
to a clientele that mainly consists of low and moderate income working people who may have bank accounts, but who lack credit cards, have poor credit histories, or have reached their credit limit. According to the St. Louis Fed, in 2019, the average interest rate on these types of loans, the average payday loan, is 391% compared to 17.8% for the average credit card and 10.3% for the average personal loan from a commercial bank. Well, I will say this. I believe in true uh, transparency. And in my 20s, I fell victim to the vicious cycle of payday loans and not understanding what that really meant. It was promises of quick cash and, you know, I could get what I wanted right away without having to to depend on my parents. Um, But these places are pretty predatory to the point that some states have deemed them illegal. But on top of their shameful practices, Aunt Carol, I understand that there are even hidden and sinister aspects of regular banking that few people know about that harm Black African-Americans and all Americans tremendously. Yep, my dear niece, there are shady secrets people probably never even consider about the financial industry, such as many of these banks have close ties to climate change and pollution. Many of them are bankrolling police foundations and policing programs that harm Black and Brown communities. And many of them are engaging in discriminatory hiring promotion practices. But all of these are topics for other episodes. So describe to our subscribe to our podcast to hear how they play out. So where do we go from here? We all can't go back to the piggy bank. We all can't sew money into our mattresses or bury in the backyard. So what can we do? Well, Courtney, things didn't get this way overnight. So the process is going to be slow to rectify the inequities. But here are some baby steps. First and foremost, we need to be supporting entrepreneurship in this country as a powerful tool that can be used by members of Black and minority communities to gain economic uh, freedom. In fact, some of the banks uh, that have some of those unsavory practices that I talked about, such as redlining and discriminatory hiring practices, they now have special programs to support small and Black-owned businesses. So if you're an entrepreneur, check into those. Uh, We also need to democratize on online banking to make it accessible to everyone. Access to the financial system by making it uh, easier is critical, but that means we have to bridge the digital divide to make sure everyone has access to the technology. Also, steps can be taken to protect and finance Black-owned banks more vigorously. Um, Also, another Uh, thing that can be done is to support initiatives that expand on and give help to um, low-income entrepreneurs and the formerly incarcerated. Uh, A good example is Colorado's Rocky Mountain Microfinance. And finally, supporting the recently announced federal initiative to expand digital and internet services in less served and uh, rural communities by reducing the cost of these services is a big step. Now, these are a few, uh, but they won't completely erase the systemic racism in banking, but we have to start somewhere. That's very, very true. And I'd like to welcome us both back. We've been on a little bit of a break, but I'm glad that we're back with our listeners 
with new episodes. But if you want to listen to old episodes, find out what we're doing on Facebook or just to get in touch with us via our other social media, you can always visit us on our website, which is www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry? That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time where we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.